0: So we are now beginning, like we do every year, the cycle of readings that have to do with John the Baptist. And it's always kind of curious to think, why does the church choose John the Baptist to get ready for Christmas? First of all, John the Baptist started preaching about 30 years, or at least 20 some years after Jesus was born. So if you were trying to do one of those historic analysis, you'd say, look, you kind of missed the boat here. And secondly, why does the church choose John the Baptist's message? Because what are we looking at here? Christmas is a time of rejoicing. The Son of God, God himself, is going to become incarnate. All the promises of all the prophets. For thousands of years of Jewish history, they've been waiting for the coming Messiah. And finally, the time is arriving. And then the church chooses a guy who goes around saying, repent, the ax is laid to the root, uh, and um, you're going to be baptized with fire. It's like, there seems to be a disconnect here, okay? Well, first of all, I think a little bit about John the Baptist. I don't think we really get just how amazing a figure he was. When I was in Rome studying theology, I remember one of our professors is one of these Bible scholar professors saying, you know, in history, there have been three great preachers. They all lived around the same time. One of them was named Jesus. He has the unfair advantage of being God. And so when he speaks, when Jesus would preach to the crowd, like the Sermon on the Mount or the Sermon on the Plain or any of those great things, even though he was preaching to an entire multitude of people, each one felt as though those words are directed straight to them, because the the word of God is living and active. One of them is St. Paul, the great preacher who adapted this message to the pagan world and knew how to make it a universal message. It was already universal, but he knew how to communicate it to the Roman Empire. And one of them was John the Baptist, the first of the three. When John the Baptist came around, the Jewish people had not had a prophet for 400 years. So if you look at their history, several hundred years before, during the times of the kings, David and Saul, all these kings, most of them had been very bad, frankly. And God would send prophets telling them, you better straighten out or else, you know, the Babylonians or somebody will have to come and take care of business. And God used these foreign countries to kind of purify the people of Israel. Eventually that happened. And 70 years after being exiled in Babylon for 70 years, the people of Israel came back. And there were still a few prophets telling them, okay, you know, this is a time of renewal, a time of restoration. Rebuild the temple. And then silence. For 400 years, it's kind of like God stopped talking to the people of Israel. And they knew that there was going to be a Messiah and they knew that before the Messiah came there would be a prophet. So imagine the enthusiasm in Israel when out of the blue, this prophet appears in the desert. And you and I, when we read about John the Baptist, we read he's wearing camel hair clothing and eating locusts and wild honey and doing all this wild stuff. Well, for them, that wasn't actually quite as crazy as it sounds to you and me. First of all, the camel hair clothing was the typical garment of a prophet. Elijah was the first one to go around dressed like that. Eating wild locusts and honey was just the survival food of people who lived in the wilderness and that's what you could get. So if you're going to live in the wilderness away from civilized, you know, bread and food and stuff where you're used to, well, then you're going to survive on survival food. It'd be like one of these wilderness guys who goes out, Bear Green or somebody, goes out and picks mushrooms and kills squirrels or whatever to, to survive, Right. But John the Baptist, the fact that there was a prophet for the first time in hundreds of years, this made waves all over the Roman Empire. Because after the Jewish people had been destroyed by Babylon, and then later Persian, these countries came, there was a dispersion of Jewish people all over these empires. They were spread all over the Mediterranean Ocean. But once, Jerusalem, once they got back to G- Jerusalem and the temple was rebuilt, they knew that they had a duty to come back every year, or at least if they could, and try to make a pilgrimage to the temple. So people all over the Mediterranean Ocean were coming back to Jerusalem and hearing, there's a prophet. And then they went back out into the Roman Empire and spread the word to all of their communities, there's a prophet, the Messiah must be coming. So John the Baptist was huge. He was known all over the place. And why then would the church choose this message, repent? Well, actually the proper word in the Greek is metanoete, which probably a better word for it would be conversion, change your life. And what he's preaching is there's somebody coming. And if we want to get ready, for something big we have to get rid of every distraction this is why advent is kind of it's kind of like a little mini lent it's supposed to be a period where we make advent resolutions maybe we make a special advent sacrifice and this is again where john the baptist comes in he was this incredible penitential figure a figure of great austerity and why do we why do we practice austerity and penance before the coming of of something good like jesus Well, here's the thing. Anything that we are attached to can become an obstacle to us giving God a 100% blank check. If there's anything at all, it can be something that's seemingly innocent, but if you're attached to it and it limits your freedom to say yes to God when he asks something of you, then it's an obstacle. I want to give you a very practical example. A few years ago when I was teaching religious education to eighth seventh and eighth graders and I would you know I think it must have been Lent so I was trying to talk to them about the idea of making Lenten sacrifices and I could tell the kids are listening to me yeah mm mm-hmm, yeah I could tell okay they understand it kind of intellectually but it wasn't really penetrating so I said okay so what are some examples of Lenten sacrifices you could make who here would be willing to, you know, offer up chocolate? Some of the kids, sure, I can offer up chocolate, whatever. Who here would be able to offer up something else? Okay, sure, whatever. But you can tell it wasn't really hitting. Who here would be willing to give up their cell phone for a day? Rebellion in the classroom. <laughs> okay, now... I realize I was dealing with some kids that are fairly spaced out and everything, but the reality is, it was like absolutely inconceivable. It's like I was telling them to commit suicide, okay? Who here would be willing to jump off of a cliff? It's like, are you kidding me? This is, there's no way. And here's the problem. When it came down in these kids' minds, okay, fine, maybe they were not in the right frame of mind and didn't totally understand what they were saying, but in these kids' minds, if the competition came between God and cell phone, God didn't even stand a chance. Okay, there's nothing wrong with cell phones per se, but if you are attached to it to the point that you say no to God, there's a problem. Your cell phone will not get you into heaven. And if you don't use it properly, your cell phone might just help get you to hell. I'm, I'm sorry, in all frankness. Uh, your cell phone will not get you to heaven. Your cell phone, frankly, is incapable of making you happy. We are made to love and be loved. We're made for relationships with people. God being the supreme person. Only people can really make us happy. And what I say about cell phones, we could say about anything else. Your job, uh, your club, your position, your looks and charm, whatever. Anything at all that we are attached to, if we're really attached to it, it it can become an obstacle to us being able to give God a yes when he comes knocking on our door. In my life, I remember a great example of somebody who gave God a real blank check was St. John Paul II. The old people in here remember him. Oh, you, you kids, you don't even know, remember John Paul II. You don't even know. You remember him? Yeah, he was a saint. I, I remember, I met him. I mean, I used to, I've heard him many times i have gone to mass with him when I used to live in Rome. I was there in his last years. I was actually there at his funeral. It was very beautiful. My right eyeball saw Pope Benedict come out onto the platform for the first time. My left eyeball didn't see it because there was a pillar in the way, but (laughs) at least with my right eyeball, I saw him come out on the balcony. (laughs) One thing about John Paul II, when he became Pope, he was, for a Pope, he was very young, he was in his early 50s. Actually, not a whole lot older than I am. (laughs) Scary thought. Um, He was athletic. He was brilliant. He had a great personality. Yeah, he was a poet. He was a philosopher. He was a mystic. He was good at so many different things. And throughout the course of his life, God started taking those things away. And it's almost like there was a conversation with him and God. Like, what happens if I start to take away your good health and give you Parkinson's? What happens if you're having a hard time communicating with people? What happens if you're having a hard time preaching? What happens if you are fatigued and all that brilliant mind of yours is just not capable of thinking as clearly as it did before? What happens when bit by bit I start to strip you of everything? And what happened in the case of John Paul II was his witness became more and more powerful. The people that flocked to the Vatican in the last couple of years jo- of John Paul II's life, I remember the last audience he tried to give. It was uh, it would have been Easter. Um, I was at St. Peter's Square. And St. Peter's Square is this kind of oval um, and it's got these pillars. And you can fit about a hundred thousand people inside that square. It was packed. And in between the pillars, there were lines of people that looked like spokes coming out because where where there wasn't a pillar, you could try to look in and see the Pope. People, there were probably a good 150,000 people there, I'm guessing, around St. Peter's Square trying to get a glimpse of a saint in the last days of his life because they knew they were probably never going to hear him again. Six days later, he died. But you would think... A guy that you can't even practically understand what he is saying. He slurred, you know, he he actually, at that moment, he tried to give a blessing and he couldn't even do it. He kind of got frustrated and pushed the microphone away. He just kind of did this. And more people were moved by those last days than by him when he was in his full vigor and, and, and whatnot. He was a man who understood Sacrifice, he understood austerity. He understood what it means to give God a blank check, to, give, to let him do whatever he wants. I can assure you, if it came down to God's will or his cell phone, I can assure you John Paul II would not have had a doubt which one he was going to choose. And this is really what Advent is for. It's a time when we can voluntarily choose then To make little sacrifices, to get ready so that when Christmas comes, we can give God our full yes. No hindrances. And then when we give God our full yes, just like in the lives of John the Baptist and John Paul II and so many great saints, he will fill us with himself. We will be men and women who live with great joy. And we will be the ones who make a mark that lasts for eternity. And that's not such a bad deal. So, blessed Advent to everybody, and let us get ready for the coming of our Lord in Christmas. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit.